This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Conservative Party took a terrible hammering in last week's local elections. But Rishi Sunak doesn't want to talk about that. While he's busy plotting coalitions, we're getting on and delivering for the British people. Instead, he's taking comfort in the idea that Labour could still fall short of an outright general election victory. A strong but not decisive Labour performance at the local elections, meanwhile, has got people pondering the prospect of a Lab-Lib coalition government. But Keir Starmer doesn't want to talk about that either. This is a hypothetical question. Well, so is the SNP one, but you answer that directly, but you're equivocal on the Lib Dems. It's a hypothetical question. In a week where it feels as if the tectonic plates are shifting, what's really going on behind the scenes of British politics? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Kreerar, and former Conservative special advisor, Salma Shah. Hello, both. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Now, first of all, I just want to look ahead to a weekend of pomp, ceremony and ludicrously over-the-top costumes, talking, of course, not of the coronation, but of Eurovision, which we are hosting on Ukraine's behalf in Liverpool. Which would you rather have had a front row ticket for, Eurovision or the coronation, Salma? You only get to choose one. <sighs> Coronation. Coronation? Yeah. No. <laughs> Did you have anyone with a fluorescent green bolero singing in a sauna in the coronation? No, I ask you. No, but I live in London, so I can just go to Soho for that. <laughs> <laughs> Pippa, what about you? Well, there are parts of the coronation that you could have the best of both worlds. You could have found yourself squeezed in between Katy Perry and Lionel Richie, for example. <laughs> so, true. you know, I mean, that might just swing it towards the coronation for me, although I think... Oh, it's a tough call, Gabby, because I'm a bit of a Eurovision fan, planning on dressing up and, and watching it and singing along. I like the glitter and I like the camp, but most of all, I like the nerdy kind of geopolitical bits of it where you can't try and work out why which Scandinavian country refuses to vote for which other country. And that's possibly a minority Eurovision sport. Anyway, we are going to kick off today by looking at Keir Starmer's refusal to rule out a coalition with the Lib Dems. And after six anti-monarchy protesters were arrested at the coronation over last weekend, just how protected is our democratic right to protest? But coming first to last week's local elections, which were obviously a disaster for the Tories, who exceeded their own worst expectations by losing over a thousand councillors, looks as if tactical voting's back, delivering a bumper night for the Liberal Democrats, particularly in the so-called yellow wall of southern Tory strongholds. 
and for Labour in many of the marginals it might need to win. But the results weren't quite decisive enough to guarantee perhaps an outright Labour general election victory. And that's got Westminster talking once again about the possibility of a Lab Lib coalition. Keir Starmer was repeatedly asked in a round of interviews on Tuesday if he would rule out a pact with the Lib Dems and very obviously didn't. Here he is speaking to the BBC's Chris Mason. Would you ever do a deal with the Liberal Democrats? Well, look, I want to press on for a Labour majority. That's what we're aiming for. This is a hypothetical question. Well, so is the SNP one, but you answer that directly, but you're equivocal on the Lib Dems. It's a hypothetical question. I want, I've been clear. I want to press on for a Labour majority. It's no That's more hypothetical than the SNP, is it? But you'll answer one of them clearly, and our viewer will say, yeah. right, Sir Keir Starmer does not want to do a deal under any circumstances with the SNP. That's clear. Yeah. With the Liberal Democrats, you, you're not answering that, which suggests that you might. There is this underlying issue with the SNP, which is why I'm so clear about that. Which yeah, but what is, about the Lib Dems? Absolutely. There is no basis um, for a deal at all with the SNP because of their politics of separation. Ed Davies similarly ruled out coalition with the Tories, but not coalition with Labour. Pippa, what are you hearing from Labour MPs? Are we all getting ahead of ourselves here for a start? I mean, do we do we really think that we're headed for a coalition? Is everyone sort of ruled out the idea of a majority Labour government at this stage or is coalition being taken seriously? They definitely have a spring in their steps since the local election results. But most of the Labour MPs I speak to recognise that it is just a staging post on the path to a majority. And of course, the local elections were just in England. And anybody you ask in Labour will point to Scotland and say, look, we expect with all the recent events there um, to be able to pick up substantially more seats north of the border than we might previously have done. And that will get us to a majority. But they recognise that they're not there yet and they need to kind of present themselves as being the party of change, which they I don't think they are yet in voters' minds. They can't just be talking about the things that are broken or have been broken after 13 years of Conservative rule, but they need also to be talking about um, how they fix them. So those are the key things that they recognise they need to do before they can get to the point of delivering a majority. But, you know, there's a tricky backdrop to it. They will say that the electorate have had so many big promises made and not been delivered that that means people are very distrustful of, of big promises from politicians on policy. And of course, we all know the economic backdrop and the problems of lack of cash around to spend. But the, the locals also give them the opportunity, though. I mean, they picked up 19 more councils. They're the biggest party in local government since 2002. So they give them, they give Labour the opportunity to start showing a bit more widely what they could do were they in power. So they definitely haven't given up yet on the hope of getting a majority at the next election. But it is very striking, as multiple observers um, have, have said over the last few days, that while Starmer is very happy to rule out a coalition with the SNP and Ed Davey is very happy to rule one out with the Conservatives, they're being much more ambivalent when it comes to uh, perhaps some pact or agreement after the next election with each other. It's that kind of not a no, which definitely feels like a yes, put it that way. Sam, how does it feel on the Tory side? I mean, there has been a fair bit of um, brave talk about how, you know, the local election results suggest it's not all over yet for Rishi Sunak. Do you think that's sort of clutching at false comfort a bit? Or do you think the Tory position is recoverable from here? 
Look, I think they have to accept that the trend is not great. You know, I mean, that's an understatement. Um, losing a thousand seats, uh, not having it as kind of like a majority council, councils in England that are out. Um, you know, this is a smaller proportion of the electorate as well. So it's a strong indicator as to what's coming. There is some comfort with the idea that Keir Starmer hasn't quite broken through. But if you're a strategist thinking about this now, and we're having that coalition talk, even if you are on a trajectory where you become the largest party, actually the problem is going to be whether you can form a government or not. And I'm so old now, I remember when we were having these discussions back in 2009 in advance of the 2010 election, general election, that did give us a coalition in the end. And so that that discussion is happening and I think there's going to have to be a big dose of realism. Now, having said that, they now need to make some interventions. Some of the stuff around the immigration bill, some of the stuff around law and order. They are going to sort of double down on the stuff that they've done in order to have a little bit of cut through. Um, and especially in places where they think they can have a good dividing line with Labour. Pippa, I mean, the one person who does emerge looking sort of quite chipper from all of this, obviously, is uh, Ed Davey, who's never been so in demand uh, for media interviews. You can already see um, this argument developing about, okay, well, what would, if he's the kingmaker potentially next time round, what would his price be for a coalition? And Tory's already starting to argue that he'd, he'd, you know, he'd want a second UU referendum or he'd want PR. What Do you have any sense of what the terms would be or what the Lib Dems might be likely to be manoeuvring for out of all of this? So Salma um, mentioned that she was old enough to remember the coalition negotiations in, in uh, ahead of the twenty after the twenty ten election. I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember the ones ahead of the nineteen ninety seven election. <laughs> when, uh, when uh, just giving away my age, when Tony Blair and Paddy Ashdown had regular meetings in each other's homes um, at Westminster, the wives were involved discussing what potentially they could agree on should Labour need the Liberal Democrats' support to, to form a government. And of course, it, it never reached that point. But even then, there was real opposition to his number one ask, which was, of course, voting reform, electoral reform, which Tony Blair initially was quite relaxed about. But Gordon Brown and John Prescott, another senior Labour figure, said, absolutely no way, that's definitely not happening. And also refused the idea of um, having Paddy Ashton sitting at a, at a cabinet, at the cabinet table with them. So as it turned out, we all know, massive landslide in 1997. And what's changed quite a lot since 1997 is that um, at Labour conference after Labour conference in the last few years, the Labour membership have supported electoral reform and do like the idea of being able to lock out the Conservatives for a generation with the other progressive parties. I think it's highly unlikely that Labour would agree to offer anything on Europe. When we look at the contortions that the party has had to engage in since the Brexit referendum, the political damage that inflicted on them in 2019, there are other factors obviously as well, but um, and how how far they've gone to kind of bend over backwards to persuade those red wall Brexit voters that they are on their side. I just cannot see them throwing them away with one fell swoop with yet another what would be presented as establishment stitch up to go back on the promises made to the British people. All of which does leave you wondering, I mean, they could always, I suppose, repeat what the, the what Labour did in 1997, which was to say it would do something about electoral reform and then and then unaccountably failed to be able to deliver that once in government. But it does raise the question of what's actually in this for the Lib Dems. I mean, there's sort of widespread assumption that they kind of jump at, at being in government. But Salma, you know, you'll remember better than anyone, the Lib Dems are completely wiped out in 2015 as, as sort of punishment for getting into bed with the Tories. And at the time, most Lib Dem MPs are going around saying, never, never again, we're not doing that again, we're never going to get into coalition again. Are there options short of a formal coalition? 
I think we should just reflect on that last point on electoral reform, where Nick Clegg was actually granted a referendum on AV and it didn't go brilliantly. And people will argue that, you know, AV wasn't the greatest PR system, but that that ship has sailed. So I think the Lib Dems need to learn some lessons from that as well, if that's going to be their ask. But really interestingly, back in 2010, and I think I'm right in saying this, right up until the 11th hour, there was supposed to be a supply side deal from the Lib Dems to the Conservatives because there was so much nervousness around it. And I think the correct decision was taken that the instability that a supply deal would bring, especially when the UK was on the brink of financial collapse, was not the right way to go. So a full on coalition was brought in then. And I remember somebody telling me a story about David Cameron meeting Angela Merkel, you know, the queen of the coalition, who said to him just before the 2015 election, never underestimate how much the junior partner in a coalition will be punished at the ballot box. And I think whatever the Lib Dems do, the price that they are going to extract has to be a pretty high one because regardless they will be punished. So what did they really want out of this? And are we in a position nationally for them to be able to have a supply deal with and not a full-on coalition? I think not. And that was evidenced by the DUP's supply deal with Theresa May's government um, as to how quickly those kinds of relationships can collapse. just wonder how much of this comes down in the end to personalities, because in one, the Conlib sort of coalition, the Cameron coalition worked in part, I think, because David Cameron and Nick Clegg were quite similar personalities. They were both quite consensual. They're both quite easygoing. They were both prepared to, you know, give a little bit and sometimes look stupid so that their other partner looked looked good. You know, there was a lot of personal trust between Blair and Paddy Ashdown. It wasn't just about horse trading votes. It was about a sense of a shared progressive project. I mean, do you think, Pippa, do you think, what do you think the chemistry between Ed Davey and Keir Starmer on a personal level is like? Do you get any sense of how they might work together? Well, I was in the Downing Street Garden for that really surreal press conference back in 2010 when uh, David Cameron and Nick Clegg appeared uh, to address the media together. And it was this great bromance. And, you know, all, all the sketch writers wrote it up as, as sort of, you know, the sort of the love affair, um, the start of the love affair, you know, those, those early days. And it is quite astonishing, actually, that the coalition managed to last five years. And I think that I put that down to the personal relationship between other factors, but over and above anything else, the personal relationship between Cameron and Clegg, they thought similarly about enough things and they really did get on on a personal level. Now, fast forward to today and look at Ed Davey and Keir Starmer. Neither has kind of quite the charisma that uh, those other two did back in the day, but they also do have some similarities. They're both very values-driven and they both present themselves as being people of principle. When it comes down to personal relationships, well, neither man has has a sort of a, a natural group of, of really close friends, acolytes, call them what you want, at Westminster. Both have their lives centred outside of Westminster in a way that Clegg and Cameron probably didn't by that stage. In a strange way, while I can't see them sort of sitting in a stranger's bar and having a pint together, again, it's another similarity that they, they have a different take on Westminster and its and its role and its relevance. The conversation that we're we're having now would, I mean, while it's all very interesting for us and, and hopefully for people listening, um, would be infuriating to some in the leader's office because the last thing they want to be talking about for the next year is, you know, horse trading, packs, coalitions, all the stuff that, that might put people off. How do they get out of that 
trap, Pippa, because there's this very obvious line emerging, attack line emerging for the Tories, which is, you know, oh, you can't believe Labour promises. They'll just have to do what the Lib Dems tell them in the end because they won't be able to govern by themselves. And you can see them even trying to tie that together with this idea of Keir Starmer as, as a leader who's broken some of the pledges he made in the leadership contest. It'll be, oh, you know, he always says one thing and then when he gets elected, he does another. How do they get out of that that trap that, 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 that you know, something Tories are trying to box them into here? I think there's two things. One is that they can point to the Conservatives, who have a very recent record of going into coalition and having a competence and supply arrangement with the DUP. So they've done both in the last 10 years. Um, but more importantly, is about projecting absolute confidence without falling into complacency that actually a Labour majority is within reach. And there's not, there's probably one more electoral test before a general election. If we're assuming that general election will be next autumn, we'll have another set of locals next year, with London mayorals, a few other mayoral elections. So there will be another opportunity for them to show that they have made further strides. And obviously there's polling and focus groups and all the sort of narrative that tends to build up as you get closer to an election. I mean, I'm very struck that I now meet business people that two or three years ago didn't want to to know what was going on in Labour and now ask me all the time. I, I've just come from a briefing, post-Prime Minister's Question Time briefing, where normally you'd have the whole press pack huddled around the government's briefing, briefers, and then, you know, maybe half a dozen would remain stragglers hang around for the Labour one. You know, the same number of people remained. There's definitely a, a sort of recognition that they are closer to power, they're more relevant, it's more important that they're held to account. And as that momentum builds, both through the polling, through their them finally developing setting out their policy platform of what they would do in government and indeed that final electoral test next spring, then um, I think it will get easier for them to argue that actually a Labour majority is within grasp. If you were advising Rishi Sunak now, Samuel, what would you be telling him? How would you be telling him to use that sort of coalition line as a weapon? Would it be vote Labour and Brexit isn't safe? Would it be vote Labour and you'll get loads of weird Lib Dem policies that you won't like on legalising cannabis or whatever what what would be your how would you use that i mean the the standard <laughs> line is of course coalition of chaos but that is no longer uh useful um uh, the bar for chaos is <laughs> quite, quite, quite high in recent years uh, and so i think i think the question has to be understood through the prism of who are the voters that they're actually going for? From an outsider's perspective, it's not clear what the electoral strategy is on the conservative side. So is it going to be a core vote strategy, in which case you're defending against the Lib Dems? Or are you going to try and keep as much as, you, as you've as you got in the red wall? Where are they going to index? And that is going to require the discipline. And that is where the message discipline is going to come from. So you could absolutely use that Brexit's at risk. The problem with that is always going to be the reality of what Brexit is now, is now bringing. That fear message that was really, really critical in 2019 around Jeremy Corbyn, no longer exists. And that is a really big reason. I think that, you know, a lot of business people are really interested in Labour again, because Rachel Reeves is, is making all the right noises in a way that John McDonnell just never could. Okay, let's just pause here for a minute. And when we come back from the break, we're going to be discussing the right to protest. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. The coronation of King Charles went off smoothly on the day, but the aftermath has been marred by controversy over the arrest of six anti-monarchist protesters. They were initially arrested under long-standing laws governing breach of the peace and public nuisance, but then the controversial new Public Order Act, which contains a new offence of locking on, came into play, with police apparently questioning whether they might be able to use the luggage straps holding their placards together to tie themselves to something. After being held for 16 hours, they were eventually released without charge, with the Met expressing regret for the arrests. All of this raises fundamental questions about the right to peaceful protest and about political pressure being brought to bear on policing. And Pippa, this is exactly what opponents of the Act warned would happen, a chilling of the right to protest. Is this a question of bad law uh, that's unclear or, or is it a question of sort of bad operational policing decisions on the, on the ground? Because it certainly feels like something's gone wrong somewhere along the line. I think it's actually a bit of both. And it's just, just it's worth just very quickly rewinding and looking at the legislation. And the week before the coronation, the Home Office wrote to various organisations, including Republic, the Republican protest group, campaign group, setting out the changes in the law that had come in under the new Act of Parliament, which was called the Public Order Act 2023. And there's a particular section of that, section two, which was about what you referred to there, Gabby, about um, going equipped to lock on, so taking a you know, some sort of chain or a bike lock or whatever it might be to tie yourself to something. We've seen it in practice with Just Stop Oil protesters, for example, which uh, which seems to be why those core members, those six members of the Republic group were arrested when they were going out for their legitimate pre-organised protest. They had some luggage tanks with them and the police on the ground thought, hang on a sec here, we need to check this out and ended up arresting them. And that's obviously raised quite a lot of concerns about that very new law and the fact that the government was really pushing and promoting it just before to get it all implemented just before the coronation. But there's a separate bit of legislation, which was the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, which became law last year. And that sets out an offence of creating or conspiring to cause a public nuisance. And that's the bit of the legislation that uh, the, the law under which 32 of the 64 people who were arrested on Saturday were detained. So there's been quite a lot of unease about how these two different bits of legislation have been enacted in the case of the, the first one sort of pushed through in order to be implemented in time. And even amongst MPs, Conservative MPs that, that backed that legislation as it went through Parliament, there is still a little bit of uh, unease about the way in which it was implemented. And of course, the very fundamental tenet of democracy um, the right to protest is, you know, is is a key part of that, which which you know the vast majority of Tory MPs say at least that they that they would support. So you know, big questions about both the legislation and the operational side of things before we 
even get into the detail I'm sure that we're about to Yeah, do. I mean, it does remind me a bit of, of when the new COVID legislation came in in a huge hurry and police were sort of arresting people for sitting on park benches. And, and there was a period where nobody seemed quite sure how to push it or, or you know, how far it was it was supposed to go. But there, there's a deeper question here, isn't there, Salma, about police operational independence too under under pressure from government. And Suella Braverman had publicly complained that she thought police weren't doing enough to stop protesters like Just Stop Oil. You know, last month she said they could even, police could even be seen as supporting the protests because of their their failure to stop them. She couldn't have made it clearer, really, that she wanted police to come down hard. Was that overstepping the mark of what a Home Secretary should be doing? Or do you think that was fair enough? So I feel slightly conflicted about this just from the um, bitter personal experience. I I obviously was at the Home Office. And I think the reason she probably articulated it is because that operational independence is quite strong and that the only tool you really have in your arsenal as the Home Secretary is to offer an opinion on what you think the police should be doing. And the police and and the chief constables are perfectly within their rights to ignore that opinion on how to enforce. So the police have to enforce have to enforce legislation, but the judgment taken on how to enforce it belongs to those individual forces. So much of the uh, of the criticism rolls up to home secretaries, and it's not just about Suella Braverman. It rolls up to every home secretary of any political party. And I think there is a, there is a lack of understanding really about how much authority Suella or any Home Secretary actually has on those police forces. I think there are layers of accountability that need to be better understood. And really the question that we should be asking is, was the judgment of the enforcement correct in that case? And I do have some sympathy for the Met in this instance because it's a huge, huge operation. And those officers on the ground are thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen if somebody does decide to lock on? And they're making a split second judgment. It's interesting. I mean, this issue did come up at at Prime Minister's questions, um, but it wasn't uh, Keir Starmer who brought it up. Labour have been uh, as quiet as they could possibly be really about this. Pippa, why is Labour so seemingly nervous about getting on this one? Do they not want to look like they're um, in favour of protesters? Do they not want to look anti-police, anti-monarchist or or what? They do seem very nervous about this question. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that their reaction to public debate has been one of extreme caution. And I don't suppose it'll be the last. I mean, it kind of characterises the response to all sorts of things, Gabby. And you might say that. <laughs> uh, spoken about this, about this before. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of what's going on is they don't want to give any political gifts to their opponents. And were they to come down too heavily some might say in defence of the right to protest, others might interpret it as on the side of the protesters, then they worry that they'll, they'll automatically be tarred by the brush of, you know, you're, you're backing the just uphold protesters, you're backing the disruption to everyday life. Um, so they don't want to get any, give any ammunition to their political opponents. Um, and what's been really interesting the last couple of days is how various senior Labour figures have been asked about whether they would repeal some of this legislation and they kind of like, which they opposed when it went through the Commons, um, and they kind of danced around it. You had um, David Lammy coming in suggesting that, you know, we can't go into office and pick our way through every single bit of Conservative legislation and repeal it. It would take up too much too much parliamentary time and we need a positive agenda. And you've had others suggesting that they look carefully at the legislation but not making any firm commitments. And then the latest from Keir Starmer's office post-PMQs uh, was that actually it is possible to amend legislation without repealing it entirely, that they can have their own plans and apparently will bring forward their own plans at some point. But, you know, yet again, we have to wait and see 
when that is and what they and what they are, but that they they can sort of overlay the existing legislation, if you like, rather than having sort of rip it up and all starting and starting from scratch. So the, the the position is is developing very slowly, still very cautiously, but we're slightly further ahead than we were three days ago. What's interesting, I mean, in in the context of the the conversation we just had, is, is that that question: Would you repeal this bill, which seems to be criminalising peaceful protest? That's a question the Lib Dems, you know, a lot of Lib Dem voters who have a very strong pro civil liberties li- tradition might answer very differently from from Labour. You can see how something like this might have divided a Lab Lib administration if it happened under a Lab Lib administration. Are we just going to have to get used to looking at politics as more of a kind of a three-sided chess game, Salma, now, where we're constantly computing how these things might work under various different correlations of administration? Yes, but I think there's there is no point in getting swept into that yet because it sort of depends on you know what the critical masses of the Lib Dems uh in that in in an administration with Labour say and all of all of this is going to be weighted on the numbers and what you know you know that famous saying you know the only thing you need to know in politics is how to count so I think it's a fool's errand to try and think of how this is going to play out at this moment in time, because context will change everything. And I think economic context will change everything as to what people decide their red, red lines are going to be if they enter a coalition and how many people they can bring, you know, who are skeptical of a certain issue or whatever, because there's, there's always going to be that horse trading. And most of it is actually not obvious to to what happened to the people outside. It's definitely been a week for the Lib Dems to have their moment in the sun, Pippa. Do you think that's going to persist? Or do you think, I mean, we've seen this pattern before where after the local elections, there's a kind of surge of Lib Dem support and interest and then it kind of fizzles out again? I predict that between now, and, and I don't like predictions, but I predict that between now and the next general election, this question about whether Labour will go into coalition or at least have some sort of arrangement, some sort of pact with the Liberal Democrats will be asked precisely 5,742 <laughs> times, which averages twice a day. Actually, I don't know if it does average twice a day. It's my <laughs> off the head, top of my maths. But anyway, it will be what I'm getting to is it will be asked all the time, precisely because there is a political opportunity for the Conservatives to remind voters that potentially it wouldn't be as straightforward as the Labour majority and they might have to make all sorts of compromises. Also, because we journalists are fascinated by the numbers and don't quite yet think that they do stack up in favour of a, of a Labour majority. But as we said earlier, as time goes on, if Labour does what it says it's going to do in terms of setting out its policy, what it stands for, positive vision for hope and change, their electoral tests, the polls reflect that, then this might be a moot conversation and actually Labour ending up, end up winning their majority after all. I have a hunch this is a question we're going to be returning to on this podcast, although probably not 5,742 times. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, both of you, for joining me. Goodbye, Salma. Goodbye, Pippa. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.